I was 22, my first proper posting issue was Campbelltown, a 5,000 ton brand new frigate. And I was given 22 men that I was responsible for in the warship. And I realized that all of them, bar none, had more experience than I did of the Navy. So I thought, so what's this leadership thing about? And I found that sailors don't follow you because you've got gold rings on your arm. They follow you because they believe in you. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. It's great to be back for another week of inspiring testimony, story, stirring faith. We're bombarded by ugh, gruesome, depressing, horrible news. And uh, the whole point of this, if you're new to us, is to stir your faith afresh and speak with people, mates of mine from different walks of life that have had incredible journeys uh, in all sorts of different fields. And this week, I'm very excited to have with us Mike Carson. Welcome, Mike. Hello, Simon. Thank you. So good to have you. Mike's got a bit of a croaky voice because he's bouncing back from some man flu or other. Uh, Mike, in terms of us and our relationship, I think we go back for probably a couple of decades, but we only see each other maybe twice a decade. But I think last time we bumped into each other, you're a trustee of Philo, so I saw you at J. John's uh, right. Evangelist Conference, I think it was about three years ago. Um, right. We first met Christchurch in Winchester and you flirted, didn't you, with being a, a GLOW trustee and then we just concluded you were too busy changing the world to be able to fit us in, which I totally get. You're married to Claire. I'm really excited to hear about your, I mean, working at McKinsey, uh, being a, a partner there and then founding Abakin and basically all about uh, transformational leadership development, that sort of stuff. So we're going to get into all that. We've got loads to unpack in the short time. So Take it away, Mike. Let's just go back to um, your your childhood, and it was fifteen. Age fifteen was a key year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so just a real privilege to, to to join you, mate. Yeah, fifteen was a key year. I, I was born in Brussels, actually. Um, it's a nice place to grow up. Uh, my my father worked in in a European context, and I lived there almost all my young life. Um, I was an only child, and beautiful life with 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 some challenges. But at 15, Jesus reached out to me. Uh, it, was, it was just a, yeah, extraordinary moment. What I remember, I can't remember what I was doing that. I think, I think my mum asked me to go and get her something. It was a Sunday lunchtime. And I went up to my parents' bedroom to get something mum had asked me to get. Um, and, and I looked in, they had like a dressing table, old-fashioned dressing table with a mirror, big mirror. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I heard a voice which I now know distinctly to be God's voice. The first thing I heard him ask me was, why do you go to church? Which I thought was an extraordinary question. And I, I sort of said something very articulate, like, A. Um, <laughs> we'd just been at church that morning. Um, we used to go to church, I'd sing in the choir, and it was, I was, I'd been a head chorister, actually. And now I was, you know, sort of, it was all part of what I did. And he said, he said, because if you don't believe in me, don't bother going. But if you do, then I'm going to change your life. Right. Was this audible or was this just in your head? Yeah, audible, audible. Wow. And, and, and I said, well, I do believe. You know, if I, I actually remember saying in the words of, is it, was it Martha or Mary? I can't remember which. Mother, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the son of God. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've got to change your life. So did you think you completely lost the plot or did you have a piece that you're just in God's presence and he was gently talking to you? Hmm. Um, the latter, uh, very much a piece. Uh, I, I wasn't quite sure. I didn't think I lost plot. I wasn't quite sure how to proceed, hmm. um, except to just be be open um, to his leading. And I remember a number of things happening 
One was that I was just browsing through television stations. There, were, there weren't that many in those days, but the, the, there was one television thing came up and um, it was Billy Graham at a, at a, at a rally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember him saying, read your Bibles, start with the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. So I went, read a chapter a day. And I went, okay, that's a good idea. So I got a Bible and I read the Gospel of John, a chapter a day. And it was stuff like that. And it felt like Jesus wanted to like teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was like such a a simple beginning, um, and yet it's like it was like choosing a lane on the motorways. You come to one of those, it's, it, like it's not even a junction. It's like where two motorways diverge. Mm-hmm. And you know, you if you go to the you, you come to the top of the M3, and if you go to the left, you're going off to Heathrow. And if you go to the right, you're going out to Kent. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to choose here, and then. A year later, two years later, radically different place. Mm-hmm. That's that's how it felt. So, two years later, you're you're, you're finished school. You're going to university. Was that sort of time frame? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Actually, so I, yeah, I went off to Manchester University to read maths, and I got there, and I was very much a. I, I sort of learned what I learned about the Christian faith was from the Church of England, um, and I met some friends immediately who were going to a church called Ivy Cottage, which was an evangelical church mm-hmm. in the south of Manchester, near where I was. It was a great place, but it, it sort of wasn't what I was used to culturally. I, I, so I, I floated around a bit, but I was strong in my faith. Had some good Christian mates as well as as, as non-believing mates, but it was the following year when I, I became president of my like my hall, and um, the guy who was running the CU in my hall said to me. First weekend back, he said, do you want to come with me to, to church? So I said, Ivy Cottage is probably not for me. He said, no, no, I got a Holy Trinity plat in uh, in Manchester. Okay, okay, that's interesting. I, I knew about it, it was C of E. I went along and I, I really heard the Bible exposited and I thought, man, that's incredible. And there was a warmth and there was a freedom and I thought, oh my goodness, this is great. Not saying there wasn't a warmth and a freedom at Ivy Cottage, but it was just, sure. it was in a context that I sort of found familiar. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I was surrounded by you know, believers of all shapes and sizes and different walks of life. And wow, it was like stepping into a new country. Um, and I, I loved it. So any any sort of key moments at university before before we talk about Navy stuff? Well, m- m- meeting Claire actually was, was was the key moment. So so my wife, Claire, is uh, we're, we're exactly the same age, but she took a year off. And so in, in the start of that second year, the same guy, Paul, who invited me to Platt said, I'm on the exec of the the Manchester CU. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to come along? We do these things Saturday nights. And I went along. It was magic. It was like, you know, four or 500 people. It was uh, really cool, very exciting. And then there was this young woman getting up on stage who, who was running the sort of drama, you know, acting stuff around the CU uh, called Claire. And I thought, I quite like her. <laughs> and um, normally I'm a man of action. But uh, nothing really happened until uh, a, a year and a half later, um, in June of my final year. I had a year still to go. And, um, and we, we went out with you know, some friends, invited us both. I don't know if they were scheming. But uh, when, I, when I went to hug her goodbye, the hug sort of lasted a few, a few seconds longer <laughs> than they normally would. And, uh, and uh, the rest is history. And, um, yeah, two years later, we were married. So uh, we've been married 34 years. And she knew she was marrying into the Navy, did she? She did actually because so so she actually promptly went off to Malaysia. She was reading geography and she went and did her dissertation in Malaysia of all things. Was, you know, I went off on holidays and then as she came back, I was joining the Navy at Dartmouth. 
and we had a cruelly short break in the sort of the end of October. And I managed to get up to Manchester for, for like a day and a half, during which time I invited her to the Dartmouth Ball, which is a great thing to go to. And uh, Claire being, you know, sort of cool student, left-wing leanings, you know, I can't come to a naval ball at Dartmouth. <laughs> and um, to which my mother said, don't be absolutely ridiculous. And um, went out and bought her ball gowns and things. And, um, and uh, Claire came to the Dartmouth Ball. And uh, that was really very romantic. Um, and yeah, I proposed for six months after that. And uh, not, not that we'll jump 30 years, but you are now a vicar's wife, or rather a, a clergy spouse, aren't you? Because she's, she's yeah, now got, right, got yeah. ordained. Yeah, brilliant. So um, Navy, tough place to live out your faith? Um, y- 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 yes and no, actually. I, I found it. Certainly in those days, I don't know what it's like now so much. I don't think it's changed. It's changed in many ways, but not necessarily on this dimension. What I found was if you could articulate what it was you believed in, people had a great deal of respect for you. And th- th- we used to say that on the, on, a, on the bridge of a warship at 2 a.m., there's, there's, there's no one without a faith. It's like, you know, you're looking at the seascape, you're looking at the, the, the stars and the moon, you're looking at the ships, it's whatever's going on. You could be in the thick of a, you know, a, a, an, a, an exercise with warships everywhere, or you could be on a, you know, a, just a silent passage, just doing 12 knots, 14 knots overnight. But, but there was always something about the stillness of the night and, and, and conversations would happen and people would start to ask each other questions of life. And I never found that my faith was anything other than welcomed, to be honest. So it was actually quite, I found it uh, a, a very good place to be a believer. Mm-hmm. And you're very driven and ambitious and, and, and gifted as a leader. You spent 12 years there. Did, were you like driven, I want to become, you know, top dog? You, you end up what, deputy chief of staff, didn't you? Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that, that's very kind of you. But um, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, I was ambitious to, to write, I am ambitious to put my gifts to the use you know, the, the, the greatest use I can find for them is like the, the 10 talents versus the one talent or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wasn't always a great leader. I learned a lot of that from the Navy. Um, I remember being, I was 22, my first proper posting issue was Campbelltown, a 5,000 ton brand new frigate, 1989. And I was given 22, it was men in those days, men and women now, 22 men uh, that I was responsible for in the warship. Um, and I realized that all of them, bar none, had more experience than I did of the Navy. So I thought, so what's this leadership thing about? And it, it's, it's, you end up leading out of, I ended up leading out of who, who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that, that, you know, sailors don't follow you because you've got gold rings on your arm. They follow you because they believe in you. So that, that was, a, you know, a big learning. And yes, I rose over 12 years to become Deputy Chief of Staff for the Seagoing Admiral. We used to call him Commander United Kingdom Task Group. The names have changed now, but uh, we would we would go and um, position in in theatre for uh, you know a, a conflict or or a, a, a crisis situation. We went out to the Gulf when Saddam had uh, expelled the weapons inspectors, and we were part of the tussles with the NATO tussles with the Americans uh, and and other NATO allies, and that was pretty dramatic. Uh, and I was yeah decals for him, which means I was um, running the 
the daily operations and the battle. And um, yeah, that was pretty exciting. Mm. So key leadership or life lessons from those 12 years? Well, um, take ownership, take responsibility, don't duck difficult situations, but address them head on. Be honest at all times. Be more open and more vulnerable than you think is sensible. And then when the bullets are flying, be strong and clear and leave from the front. Mm. Would you say that you saw Jesus clearly at work in, in that time? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I saw him a, a lot. I mean, first of all, without wanting to sound trite anyway, he was very much at work in me. I, I, I joined the Navy not at all feeling like the finished article, but I was even less finished than I realized. You know, we're all works in progress. Mm-hmm. And the Mike who left the Navy was, so to speak, more than 12 years older than the Mike who joined. Um, you know, th- there was a richness of the walk with God both in professional terms, uh, personal terms, spiritual, the, the growth of the leader that was that, that was that I was to become, uh, that was accelerated um, in 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 that time by some pretty pretty crunchy experiences. Um, one of the one of the most beautiful ones though was uh, a deployment with a warship HMS Nottingham to the Gulf um, in the early nineties and. Uh, we had a Christian fellowship on board, which 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 I led um, and convened, and it, it just grew and grew and grew, and it started off being sort of five five guys, and ended up being about thirty five in a warship of two hundred people, which is pretty exciting. Mm. Um, people of all you know of all ranks and rates. I remember a beautiful moment when I uh, there was also. Um, Often I would be, we used to say with a smile, the church officer. But the, the, the Navy requires, the Articles of War require all captains of seagoing vessels to celebrate divine service every Sunday at sea. So there has to be a church service. Hmm. And often the captain will delegate it to an officer. And when he's got a Christian officer, someone who, for whom the face is important, then he's, you know, delighted. Yeah. Um, so 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 I had a very supportive captain in in, in Nottingham. And, and again, I did something quite similar two years later in a, actually a very sister warship, HMS Liverpool, and in both cases had a very supportive captain. And I remember a Sunday service once, I just very simply talked about how there was a gulf between, there's a gulf between us and God and the cross. I just like showed, you know, like the two hillsides falling away and then the cross bridging that, that gap. Mm-hmm. And um, that evening I walked into the operations room and there was a petty officer, young petty officer sitting at, so he'd be about, I don't know, 28, sitting at his console. Um, he was the missile director. And he sitting at his console. It was peacetime. It was just cruising watchers. We sitting at his console. And he was talking to his colleague next to him. And he was drawing what I'd drawn at church that morning. And he was yeah. explaining how the cross bridged, you know, from us to God. Extraordinary, right? And so so that sort of thing would happen. And, and people would be very open in the spirit would open people's hearts and ears, which was just, just brilliant. Mm, wonderful. So did you feel a clear redirection then to, to leave? I think, yes, I did. I, I, yes, I did. Um, 
I, I think I got to a stage where I realized that the, the Navy was going to be smaller. Um, and we could all see that, um, the, the part of the, uh, the, uh, the, the peace dividend, so to speak, post-Cold War, um, the, the, the state was going to demand a lot of the defense budget back uh, for other things. I distinctly remember a, um, a defense secretary coming on board and asking how much a Harrier jump jet had cost. And uh, when we told him, he said, oh, you could buy X hospitals for that. And I remember thinking, yeah, okay, so if the defense secretary is saying that, we've got, we've got challenges. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that was wrong. I could see the Navy was shrinking. And I, and I thought, and also, although it's, it's a magnificent institution, I mean, absolutely, I, I'm still a huge fan uh, and always was. It felt in, in many respects very British, which is not a bad thing. But I was born into a European environment and I had a strong heart to um, just to work more broadly in the world, um, in, in Europe and possibly beyond. Uh, so, so I wanted to tap into something that was global and a, potentially a global role. Um, so I, I took a step into towards business. That's when you went to INSEAD. INSEAD, one of the best business schools in the world. My dad went there. So I went there. I went there as a sort of 10-month-old and graduated with distinction. Um, great years. Can't remember them. Excellent. Did you have a good time there? Yeah, it was, uh, mate, it's fantastic. INSEAD is one of these great places, actually. It's probably because of the time of life that you go. People there are typically between sort of 26 and 34. I was, more, I was the 34 end. Um, and, and often it's a life... It's a life moment. So people <clears throat> um, either you know, meet their future marriage partner there or you know, something like that. And um, with Claire and me, we'd already been married 12 years. Um, so we started our family there, uh, which is great. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful year. Loads of great friends who've remained great friends ever since. And you came out of that and were you recruited straight away by McKinsey? Yeah. So McKinsey's a great Another phenomenal institution. For those who don't know, just tell us what it is. So McKinsey's one of the consulting houses, uh, one of the world's finest consulting houses, I would say. Um, there are three particularly globally known for their, their strategy work, but, but at sort of uh, large corporate level. So McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, and Bain are the three people normally quote. And McKinsey serves the um, leadership, the CEOs and the leadership of large corporates and governments around the world. Mm-hmm. So typically working with FTSE 100s, that, that sort of company. Um, really exciting, great place to be. And McKinsey came and recruited on, on campus, which is a great privilege anyway. Um, but but what, what I mean by that is normally to get an interview with McKinsey is quite a, a challenge in itself. Um, but because we were at INSEAD, it was it, it was uh, just a wise thing for McKinsey to do. We, McKinsey always recruits at INSEAD every year. So we'll come and see people. And if you wanted an interview, you were guaranteed an interview. And so uh, uh, there were some people there who are ex-McKinsey and I really liked the way they, they worked and I liked what they did. And I thought, uh, yeah, good um, organization, good firm to to apply to. And the, f- the more I dug and the more I found out about the firm, the more I liked what it stood for, its values, how it worked. And, and just seemed to be absolutely predicated on the notion of service, client service. And, and I just thought, this has this got to be a, a good place. And every time I scratched the surface and dug deeper, I found it was a good place. Um, and they interviewed me, you did, you know, one, two rounds. And um, 
lots of personal interviews and uh, and then offered me a place, which is amazing. Mm. And where did the encounter with God in Mallorca, where did that come in? So, so the encounter with God in Mallorca, well, so I landed in McKinsey London office in sort of 2000. And the encounter with God in Mallorca was, was five years later. It was just before I was 40. And, and I'd, I'd had a, you know, a really, really good, fascinating um, four or five years at the firm. And now was the sort of moment of thinking, well, if I stay at the firm, I'm, I'm pressing in towards the partnership and that's, uh, that's a, you know, it's a demanding route and it's great, but it's a demanding route. I have to be absolutely sure this is what I want to do. And I guess there was something as well about the magic of the, you know, the 40, you know, the four zero. Uh, was, I, I just, time to review. And I remember we were, Claire and I, and we had two girls at the time, very, very little uh, girls who I think they were four and one or uh, something like that. And the Claire just managed to get the two girls to sleep in the in, in our room. We stay in this lovely hotel owned by a friend of mine in the north. It's a place called Porto Solia. I used to go there as a kid, actually. And I was just sitting on the balcony. I was reading uh, daily Bible reading. I happened to be in um, the beginning of Joshua. And I was looking out to see. It was lovely. It was nighttime by then. And, you know, all the, the lights at the port were, were on and just the, the, the the boats in the harbour and it, it's a beautiful sight, just some music playing. And then I'm just reading the, 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 the passage in Joshua one and Joshua meets the angel of the Lord. And he has this huge task in front of him of filling the shoes of Moses and leading 2 million people across the river into the promised land, not knowing what to expect in the promised land. And the angel says to him, be strong and very courageous. Mm. Meditate on my Lord day and night. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. And I'll be with you wherever you go and you'll be prosperous and successful in whatever you do. But be strong and very courageous. And it was like, it was like an Indiana Jones moment. You know, I don't know if you remember when, you know, in the, the first Indy Jones movie and he puts the staff in the ground and the light catches, you know, goes through them, yeah. goes through the jewel. And it was like that. It was like beams of light. Uh, I'm sure there were angels present. I'm absolutely sure of it. And and it was like, this is for me, right? It's like that time when scripture just, you know, just speaks to your heart, just cuts you to the quick. Yeah. And uh, and I just said, you know, well, like it was sort of sort of wow. It was a bit like going back to 15 when I sort of said, hey, it was like it was speechless. And and then I said, but but you know, Jesus, at least Joshua knew what he had to do, even though you know it's tough. I don't even know what I, you know, what I have to do. Where am I headed? And he said to me very gently, he said, I've told you this before. I, you don't have to ask me again. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's in your heart. I said, so I can trust my heart. And he said, yes, yes, of course you can trust your heart because I've renewed your heart. Mm. And this was an extraordinary moment because I'd always until that moment kind of thought of my heart as being um, somehow wrong or sinful, almost like, Hey, if I do that thing that I like, that, that, that must be a bit naughty. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it, I don't know where I got all this from, but, but it was like something that was with me. And I find it's with a lot of people, you know, if you're enjoying it, it can't be good. Actually, it's the opposite, isn't it? If you're enjoying it, it probably is good. Um, uh, and, and, and I, uh, I was looking, I remember thinking, you know, a, a, 
you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're a world-class footballer and you, you know, uh, you rock up on the training field, you never do a day's work in your life, right? Because you kick a ball better than almost anyone else in the world. And people just look and go, oh my goodness. So what is it that I do? What is it that's in my heart? What have you gifted me for that, that I can do that no one else can do? And I started doing a very McKinsey thing, actually. I wrote down a list of all the things that made my heart sing mm-hmm. and all the things where I felt in the flow. And then next to it, a list of how I could pursue all of those tracks. And the next day I took Claire out for dinner in Mallorca. And she, you know, it's that classic thing that, that husbands and wives do. And she, uh, she went down the list and said, I don't know, that one's rubbish. That's not true. And then this one's excellent. <laughs> and then, and, and um, it's just brilliant. And, uh, and, and I think by the end of that evening, I, I sort of, I wouldn't say I had it all mapped out, but I, that was another moment of, you know, motorway shift. I took a different lane. It was all in God's grace and, all under his, all under his beautiful leadership. But 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 I took another lane, and I knew I was going to do something very different. And 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 that was when he, essentially he uh, we, we I created a a phrase um, with him, which is um, essentially my calling, which is to release hearts, releasing hearts. So so what that's become has been my life's work, which is to the to release the hearts of of people and particularly of leaders because leaders then can release the hearts of their people. So it becomes like a, like a, a, a magnificent cascade of people releasing each other, knocking off the chains, Isaiah 61, release from prison for the captives, um, just letting people operate out of the fullness of who they are in God. It's just one of the most beautiful things you can do. Yeah. And um, the trajectory has been pretty stratospheric, hasn't it? You've had great opportunity to wield huge influence in people's lives without mentioning names because uh, you said you didn't want to do that. I totally understand that. And names of individuals or companies. Can you give sort of anecdotal stories of, of how you've seen just beautiful release of hearts? Oh, that's a lovely question, Simon. No, thank you. I, uh, yeah, you, you know, look, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a, a superb journey. Just very briefly, and so the, this bit non-anecdotal, and then I'll come to the anecdotes. Just so you know a little bit about God's oversight. It's been a three-stage journey. So I set up my own business, first of all, and and joined with others. And then McKinsey came back to me quite a number of years later. We're now talking sort of 2011 and said, we, we want to do this work. Would you get together with these four people? So you know, five of you who we all who we love and trust, who are doing similar things on your own, combine forces, and we'll set up a joint venture with you. So we set up. Well, it is actually a new firm, but imagine it as a sort of fifty-fifty, like a dream team. The dream team, and we called it Avakin. So we were not employees of McKinsey, but we were co-owners with the firm of a new business, a new firm, to do this work. And then what I call the work of transformational leadership, helping leaders to transform organizations through the, the human touch, if you like, through helping human beings to follow them. Um, and and, and uh, that went so well that then McGizzy said, um, actually, we'd like to acquire you so that we can scale you. And that happened for you five years ago now in 2017, uh, since which we've been fully a part of McKinsey and I'm now a part of the firm. And and all of that, which is amazing. Now, why I tell you that big overview is because that journey has been progressively a journey of greater and greater reach and greater and greater opportunity. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've gone from 
you know, I mean, it's all a privilege, right? But I've gone from sitting with, um, you know, pe- people who I knew personally and who wanted my, you know, my, my services and maybe the old client introduction here and there to now just having global introductions. So, for example, next week um, I'm going to Israel to work with a major startup organization there and to work with their execs who are putting it together and support their execs in creating this organization. Uh, this is an opportunity. I, I, I haven't met any of them before, but it's come to me through the firm, um, through senior partners there who are working with these clients and they thought that my work would be appropriate. And and, and so, so you know, things like that just happen all the time. So we're getting introductions to, you know, global leaders in extraordinary organizations. Anecdotally, you know, you ask for, 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 for stories of releasing hearts and there've been, there've been so many. I remember, I, I mean, I, I've had so many cases where uh, honestly, I, I would meet marriage partners, husbands and wives of execs who would literally come to me and say, you know, you've, my wife's life has changed since, since working with, hmm. with you and your people. And, and, you know, thank you for giving me my husband back. You know, and yeah. just enabling people to get to, to, to more of a balance and a, a flourishing balance. It's not just about, you know, less time for work, more time for home. It's about how do I become this leader with an identity that is as at ease at work as I am at home. I bring the same to both. I bring all of myself to all of my interactions and the one feels the other. And... It's brilliant. And we go, you know, how do you work beyond places of fear? How do you work beyond places of anxiety? How do you work beyond the inner voice that is telling you you're useless? And all of those things that that we do with people. And very mature, very, very strong leaders who just find that they, it's almost like their minds just open and their hearts just open. It's, It's really, it's really extraordinary. I work with one group exco of a magnificent insurance firm. And um, we did a piece on having tough, tough conversations. We call them courageous conversations. It's about one-on-one relationships. And if there's something getting in the way of me and you, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, to work well together, we may even have been good friends, whatever it is, but it's not like that anymore. Why not? Rather than just letting this drift or letting... Uh, frustration settle in or resentment, we're going to name it and deal with it and how you do that. Um, I, I remember doing this and with a group, it's, this group Exco would have been about 16 people and people went off in pairs and had these conversations. And the chief exec went off with essentially the, 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 the number two in the organization. And these two, both great men and uh, of different cultures, actually, both great men and they went off for a conversation and they came back about an hour and a half later. And we were all sharing a bit about, you know, how those conversations have gone. And I remember the looks on their faces and the, the number two, he said, we should have had that conversation three years ago. Hmm. And they hugged one another publicly. And you could just see the joy in the room. Yeah. It was like that needed to happen. And, you would, and, and the dinner that evening, which is actually a beautiful dinner where people shared stories of transformation in their lives. Oh, my goodness. I mean, 
that sequencing of, first of all, people's hearts opened because they saw the top two, not, not burying the hatchet, but opening, exploring, being real with one another, forgiving one another, reconnecting. The sense in the room of whether people could articulate it or not, of this is now going to be a very different place. Yeah. Then we, have, we sit down for this beautiful dinner, but, you know, 20 of us around the table, each person sharing a story so personal to them. One man mm. shared a story about how his son had an addiction now to, to, uh, to alcohol, which, had been, which was so ghastly for him. And, and he'd watch his beautiful son go down, you know, downhill and how could I bring him back? And people were sharing at a level they never shared at before. And the, the, the sense that we now had 20 human beings in the room, human leaders. Yeah. It was just palpable. So that, that, that's the sort of work. Mm, that's wonderful. And I'm guessing um, you, it, you're imparting kingdom values without being explicit in mentioning Jesus on some levels or Jesus comes in later in the more intimate one-on-ones or what? Yes. I mean, th- that, that's exactly right, Zion. You know, I, a lot of people recognize kingdom values without knowing that they're kingdom values. Yeah. Um, and you know, th- th- this cuts both ways. I mean, you know, uh, the, the church in, in, you know, bless us over the generations, in some respects, we've been our own worst enemy, right? By, by creating a language that's different from, you know, or, or doesn't keep pace with, with the outer world or, or whatever, or by saying, you no, know, everything else is wrong and only we're right and giving that impression. And the enemy gets in through creating a religious, spirit and that's there's nothing like the kingdom but people think it is and there's all of that stuff going on so people come with preconceived ideas of of christianity and or 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 rather of of religion as they as 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 they tend to call it but if you're living out kingdom values and teaching kingdom values people go yeah i get that oh absolutely and then jesus naturally comes in and and sometimes I mean, I, I'll, I'll speak the name Jesus with, with you know with any others, um, and but and I'm I'm quite open that he is at the heart of who I am, mm-hmm. um, and that that my faith is in him, um, and I'll have those in intimate conversations. Sometimes I mention the dinner where we're sharing stories. Sometimes I'll, I'll share a story that's about Jesus. In fact, that night, that night that I was referring to, three people, not me, three of the client exco shared stories of Jesus. So three were believers already. And he's so important to them that he just came out. And Brilliant. on every occasion, it was really well received, beautifully received. I've never seen anyone say, what, you know, what a load of rubbish. N- never, ever, ever. Mm. If it's about yourself personally, that's perfectly fine. What I can't do, of course, and, and never would, is um, you know, hijack the opportunity of a workshop to say, you know, um, right, I'm going to do some Bible teaching, uh, you know, that, that will be inappropriate. But to, but to quote from the Bible alongside other great wisdom and to, to show the, the, the power and the worth of that scripture, that's perfectly fine. Mm. Um, and I will accord it to, you know, Paul of Tarsus or Jesus of Nazareth or whoever it was who said it. Yeah. Hi, folks. This podcast comes out under the auspices of Great Lakes Outreach. And over the next few weeks, over the Easter season, we're doing an appeal for a fantastic project. We are building a pastor's retirement village in Karuzi in Burundi, basically. They are often 
These pastors left on the scrap heap of life, having given their everything for decades. There's no social security, there's no pension system in Burundi. And unless their family take care of them, they can end up absolutely destitute, hungry, and even regretting that they gave their life to ministry. That is so wrong. And so we are looking at buying 17 and a half hectares of land, which means that the whole project will be self-sustaining. Uh, for 25 pounds or 30 dollars, you could buy 100 square meters. And that is a gift that we'll keep on giving for decades to come as every harvest season, fresh crops will be grown and provide for these precious people that gave their whole lives to ministry. It's a brilliant project. I'd love you to be a part of it. Just 25 pounds for, for or 30 dollars for 100 square meters or more. Uh, go to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pastors so that we can honor those who honored him. I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or with their children begging breath. That's what we want to be contributing to. Great idea, brilliant vision. It's going to happen. Do you want to be a part of it? Please do. All right, let's get back to the podcast. You know, I really wanted you on for a number of reasons. Uh, I knew you'd be good value, but I, it's like, um, you know, often businessmen, you know, going into that side of work it's considered a dirty game and you'd have to compromise your values and there's lots of yeah darkness and actually of course that can be the case but the whole point is we need people like you in there acting as redemptive agents isn't it well do you know i spot on simon i think it's true of actually of all walks of life that the, 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 there's a dark side and we need redemptive agents everywhere. So yeah. you, 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 I think it applies universally. But in the matter of business, um, I think one of the things that's both for and against us is that there's so much freedom. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's there are laws within which you know laws of the land, and there's a lot of you know scrutiny and regulation that has to be followed and so on. But in terms of you know, how we interact. Um, I mean, for example, our firm has, you know, a very clear set of values and, and, you know, you'd love them if I, if I spelled them out to you, they, they'd accord, they'd accord with, with our values very, very strongly. But within that, I have a lot of freedom of choice, who mm -hmm. I choose to work with, who I bring onto my teams, how I interact with my clients. You know, do I do one-on-one -on -one dinners? Do I do team dinners? Do we, you know, do we go somewhere together? Do we, do I come and observe them at work? Do I, how do I debrief? Do I, all of those things, right? There's all sorts of ways of working and different things. And there's a freedom within, and, and my clients can say, you know, they have executive authority. They can say, we want to work with you. And they sign the contract, Yeah, which, which is, it can be a lot harder when, uh, and many of my colleagues do work with public sector clients is, is harder because the scrutiny is, is enormous. Whereas there's, there's more freedom in the private sector. And I find that freedom um, is a beautiful place to play. Now with freedom comes responsibility. So there is darkness in business. Of course there is. And, and, and so we want to be, we want to bring the light. Most of the people I work with are people of the light quite naturally, but then they're tending not to let their light shine. They, they don't realize the value of the light they hold. And I think that that's the release I often, and, and my colleagues often bring is the chained up heart is saying, I don't think I'm really good enough or mm. no matter what I do, I'll, I'll make little difference or I'll be just like, you know, the, the, the pebble in the pond. 
the, the ripples and then they're gone. You know, what can I do? Um, I'm, I'm only, I, I only have this much reach. My hands are tied. That sort of stuff. Actually, when we liberate the heart, when we get rid of that self-imposed or enemy-imposed restriction, then actually the light that people bear is often dazzling and beautiful. And that's the light of Christ. Yeah. Hey, listen, um, this might seem like quite a jarring sort of departure in terms of question, but time's running out. And you gave me permission to talk about it because I, you know, I see you and people listening like this, this world traveling, high influence, wielding uh, person, hobnobbing with very sharp people, uh, power brokers of the world. And yet, just in terms of being very real and vulnerable, can you share about, um, mm. you talked about you know, being abused as a child and, and how the Lord's brought mm. healing there? Mm. No, Simon, thank you, thank you for thank you for going there. Because I mean, I, I think you know, I, I've never really spoken about it in this way, as in, yes, here I am, fifty-seven, doing this work, still doing this work, loving it, top of my game in so many ways. Where did I come from? And actually, there's a great redemptive story in that, mm. and a great healing story, because. You know, I, I I didn't have a bad childhood. I mean, many, many, many children are brought up in often devastating circumstances. You're very familiar with this, with all your wonderful work in, in, in Burundi. And they could be physically devastating, emotionally devastating. But what happened to me was just that um, a, a friend of my parents um, who on the face of it seemed to be, you know, a good guy he was a, uh, a qualified medical doctor, although he wasn't practicing, he was doing something in pharmacology, I think. And um, he, he sort of befriended the family and he used to fly. He had a private pilot's license. I was sort of 13. Um, he offered to take me flying. Wow, amazing. Um, but actually it ended up in a, in a sexually abusive situation. Mm. Um, and it was... You know, because I was 13, it's, I mean, it's, it's awful whenever it happens, but the trouble with being that sort of age was that for many years, I carried a guilt about that mm. and felt that it was, you know, I'd invited it somehow. It was, it was my fault. Um, and I was somehow, you know, cooperating. And actually, it was, although I'd, I'd given it to Christ um, and, and I'd been open about it, and I'd, I'd told my parents and, and all of that, and that moved away. It wasn't actually until I was about 25, 26, I'd already been married to Claire for three, four years, and I, I, I thought I was fully healed. But there was a moment um, I was with a friend uh, who was our youth leader at church at the time, actually, um, this guy Gareth. And, and Gareth, I told Gareth the story, and he looked at me and he said, Mike, you were 13? He said, you were a child. This is, you know, it's always like, the classic counseling, this is not your fault, mm. right? This is not your fault. And there was a moment of just a wave of relief mm. um, and and just feeling that, yeah, it's okay. It's, it, you know, I, I've got you. And, and, and something beautiful happened, Simon. I, um, m- maybe if there's just room for one more story, I remember this so well. So... After Mallorca and after the, the whole thing about uh, trusting my heart, a good friend of mine hearing 
that language and what God was saying to me put me in touch with uh, a great man, John Eldridge, who mm-hmm. many of you know um, or know of, um, author of you know Wild of Heart, Awakening the Dead. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, books, but also a magnificent speaker and a magnificent leader. Actually, he's a, 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 a brilliant man, now a close friend and um, elder, slightly, only slightly elder brother in Christ. Just a great man. And I, I had connected with him because of the work of releasing hearts. And I was on a, 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 one of his boot camps. It was an advanced boot camp. And we, we, one of the things we did, we went together in, in small groups and prayed for one another. And these guys were praying for me and deliberately, you know, looking for, for parts of, you know, things in my history that needed, might need clearing up mm-hmm. that, you know, where God wanted to speak in and heal. And, um, he took me in, in that situation back to the garden of my parents' home, my home. Uh, when I was 15. So this would be at the same time as in, in, in just in chronological terms, the time that the Lord called me um, when I was looking in the mirror. It's the same age, 15. And I was at the back of my parents' house in the garden, kicking a football, which is something I often did. And um, Jesus met me there. I, I, I actually saw Jesus meet, m- meet Michael, meet the 15-year-old. And he said to me, come with me. And he took me to the throne room of heaven. And I put my head on the lap of the father. And the father said, from this day, I father you myself. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. So I know that that happened. And um, by the way, that's not a comment on my earthly father. But it was a stepping in. It was, I'm going to, I'm going to take you personally under my wing. I will be father to you, and just extraordinary. So that that is almost like the moment of calling, and the deep moment of healing happens simultaneously. Um, so at that retreat, at that Eldridge boot camp in 2008, interestingly, it was just it was just after my earthly father had passed away. It's, it's the, it, God chose that moment to reveal how he'd actually been fathering me ever since. Hmm. Beautiful. Oh, Mike, listen, I thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. And, uh, you know, that might open up stuff in the people listening. And, I mean, could they be in touch with you at all? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay, well, we'll put your details in the blurb. Is there anything before we close that you want to sort of plug at all? Any last words, either? <laughs> um, thank you. I, nothing to plug. Um, I, I just ask for prayer around, you know, opportunities with with extraordinary leaders, mm. where these people have, you know, huge responsibilities for large numbers of people, and 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 often a, a deep sense of responsibility for large numbers of people and their families and livelihoods and these leaders take these things very seriously which is as they should and if i can and my colleagues at ever be of any you know service to them 
and my colleagues at McKinsey, this is great. This is this is this is kingdom. Just to 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 bring to bring strength and clarity in what is a very turbulent and very confusing world. Mm. Um, there are some wonderful, wonderful women and men out there, and um, just prayer for kingdom come. Brilliant. Your kingdom come, Lord, be it through uh, Abakin, be it through McKinsey, um, or everything that Mike does. And all of us, as we listen to this in our respective fields of service, our respective journeys, our respective calls, I hope you've been encouraged uh, today, all of you. And uh, if you have, and you can share this podcast with other people, that's great. If you can give us a great review on Spotify, iTunes, that's brilliant. So the algorithm brings it in front of more people. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your time. God bless you, brother. And you, man. Thank you. Brilliant. Hey, guys, uh, I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. I love the range of these stories. They're so edifying and encouraging. I want to thank Adam and Thomas Steer for the mixing and uh, Mike Sandiman for the editing. In the meantime, have a great week. God bless you and toodaloo. Toodaloo.